So I want to invite you to get your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 21. And we're going to be going through verses 12 through 36. Now, if you've read this text, you're probably saying, I have no idea where Pastor Rod's going to go here. And quite frankly, when I read this text, I thought to myself, I have no idea where I'm going to go here. Um, And yet, at the same time, uh, this is God's Word, and we believe that it's relevant, and so we need to do our best to, to seek to understand what God is saying. Let me invite you to stand, and we will uh, read verses 12 through 36 together. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel, and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money." When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, female, the owner shall give to the master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, or an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live oxen share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, 
he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. Lord, we come to a text like this um, that, that seems uh, very detailed, uh, very law-like, um, and, and quite frankly, uh, lacking action and activity, and, and we're wondering what it is that you want us to see. And so this morning, Lord, would you give us hearts that are teachable and humble? Um, would you allow us to be good expositional listeners? And Lord, would you allow me to be a faithful expositional preacher so that we can assess, Lord, what it is you want us to grasp from this text, Lord, that will point us to Christ, but also help us to, to live our lives in such a way that reflects your purposes. So, Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, would you make us? And what we have not, Lord, would you give us? We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, some of you may know that a week ago, Friday, marked the 48th anniversary of the Supreme Court's landmark ruling, Roe v. Wade, a ruling that upheld the woman's right to choose an abortion up to the end of the first trimester and opened the way for the horrifying laws that now allow the murder of innocent children even up to the point of birth. It was also a ruling that rejected the biblical idea that life begins at conception. On that very same day, January 20th or 22nd, 2021, the following statement was released by our president and vice president, and this is what it, is what it reads. Today marks the 48th anniversary of the U.S. Supreme Court's landmark ruling in Roe v. Wade. In the past four years, reproductive health, including the right to choose, has been under relentless and extreme attack. We are deeply committed to making sure everyone has access to care, including reproductive health care, regardless of income, race, zip code, health insurance status, or immigration status. The Biden-Harris administration is committed to codifying Roe versus Wade and appointing judges that respect foundational precedents like Roe. We are also committed to ensuring that we work to eliminate maternal and infant health disparities, increase access to contraception, and support families uh, economically so that all parents can raise their families with dignity. This commitment extends to our critical work on health outcomes around the world. As the Biden-Harris administration begins in this critical moment, now is the time to rededicate ourselves to ensuring that all individuals have access to the health care they need. Now, my point here is not to be political by any means, but it is at least to address the fact that the direction of our country's leadership is moving fast and furiously away from the heart of God. And so it's fitting that on this Sunday, just a, a little while after this declaration was given, that we come to a text that is screaming at us that God is committed to the sanctity of human life. Whether that life is of a man or a woman, someone who is rich or poor, a slave or a master, a human being that is born or unborn. It is a text that is rooted in the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And this text contains case law 
that fleshes out why the sixth commandment applied. So these laws emphasize that God is committed to the sanctity of human life. Now, it's important that when we come to the section self-identified in chapter 24, verse 7, as the book of the covenant, that we see that God is seeking to establish this new nation of Israel with laws that will flow out of his character. And this is really important. In other words, the laws were given for the health and well-being of the people of Israel in particular are based on the moral code and guidelines of the character of God. So when we read in the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, uh, you shall uh, not bear false witness, all of those are, are, are insights for us into the moral character of God. They are not the moral character of man. And we need to be able to see the distinction there. So here in chapter 21, verses 12 through 36, we see that God is committed to the sanctity of human life. And here is a highlighted kind of summary of the questions that this text raises. What happens, first of all, when a man strikes another man and he dies? What happens when a son or daughter strikes their mother or father? What happens when a man steals another man to sell him? We call that slavery. What, what happens when a man curses his father or mother? What happens when a man strikes a slave so that they die? What happens when a, a pregnant woman is, is in, uh, an innocent bystander, but she's struck by men who are fighting and the baby dies? What happens when an ox gores a person to death and the owner knew that the ox had a habit of violence? Those questions is this. The guilty person is sentenced to death. Now, friends, we read that and we let it sink in. And God is saying, when you take a life, when you treat parents with violence, when you buy and sell a person or kill a child in the womb, the party is deserving of death. This is the heart of God speaking. Now, you might recoil. And think to yourself, that seems rather harsh of God to require such a sentence. What kind of God would require a punishment of death? And friends, the answer is a just God who takes the sanctity of life seriously. So now as we consider our text, I realize that what we have before us is law. I remember when I was in college, I took business law. Anyone here ever take business law before? Our textbook was about this thick and about this high, and the font was like so teeny, teeny, tiny. And we had to read this whole thing. And let me tell you, we just, it just, you just kind of like read it, and you're like, uh, it's just so full of details. And it's, it's not unlikely that as we read the text this morning that you were already yawning because it's just a, a list of rules. It's just a list of law. But friends, although it might seem boring, although it might seem irrelevant, although it might seem confusing, this is the kind of text that, that even though we feel that way, is actually saying things that God wants us to hear. 
This is the kind of text that we're very tempted to skip over. In fact, if you went online and just typed in, you know, pastors preaching through Exodus, you'll find that most of them finish in chapter 20. They don't even bother with the rest of the book of Exodus. But God has given us the rest of the book. And I realize that we might be more interested in exciting battles and people's kind of activity and the action and all that kind of stuff that happens in the Old Testament. But we must be convinced that God's Word is relevant and that we are then to do the hard work of mining it and to see its relevance. And I just want to encourage you, friends, I've worked hard this week to try and put this together in such a way that we can grasp it and understand it and see it applied. But there's a burden of responsibility on your shoulders to be expositional listeners, to work hard at listening and following along and thinking through this yourself. Now, I I want you to know that God has given us case law. This is what this is. This is case law so that we can know more about him, so that we can apply what we know, and then we'll be able to proclaim what we know uh, to ourselves, preaching the gospel to ourselves and to others. And really, that is what our mission statement is all about, isn't it? We exist to glorify God by building a community of believers who are actively committed to knowing, to applying, and proclaiming the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, that same commitment comes here in Exodus 21. And God wants us to know it, to seek to apply it. And then... are three guiding head, headings. The, the rules to know, the truths to apply, and the gospel to celebrate. Just a quick question. Is the PowerPoint not working? Because I don't see it, it moving at all um, to help people along. So we're still in the introduction here. I, I want to draw, though, to, uh, to Luke chapter 24. And this is really important. Because Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, and he's, he's come upon the two disciples who have, are aware that Jesus obviously was, was crucified and was buried, and they're kind of in despair, but they heard about something, and Jesus comes along and he says something to them. And I want you to notice in verse 25 what, it, what he says. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning... Moses and all the prophets he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. What he's saying there is Moses. This would be the Pentateuch. So within the Pentateuch, within Exodus, within even this section, Jesus is saying there's things in there that point to me. All right? And he repeats, he kind of says the same thing a little bit later on in verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words and I spoke to you. I was with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And friends, what he's saying there is that the Messiah is throughout the Old Testament. He's there. Now, the reality, he's not in every verse of the Bible. But every verse in the Bible, you can go from every verse in the Bible and find yourself landing either at the cross or near the cross. Because all of these themes, all of these truths are building their way and pointing to Jesus Christ as a fulfillment. 
And with that said, let's think now first about, about the rules to know. God is giving us some rules to know. As we come to our text, um, we're going to look at our whole text under this heading. Notice that there are three sections. There's verse 12 through 17, 18 through 27, and 28 through 36. That should be in your handout if you have it. So there are three sections to this text. Secondly, there is a progression in this section on the sanctity of life that moves from the most severe to the less severe. So at the beginning, you have, I want to say, people dying for their crimes, and at the end, you have an animal that must be put to death, right? So there's, there's a progression going on here in this section. And third, there, these illustrations or examples are, that are given to us are not exhaustive. Uh, God is not trying to give answer to every situation, but he's giving case law, which means here's a situation in which this, this fleshes out. And remember, what's he doing? He's, he's giving this case law so that the judges that Moses is going to be putting in place to help him carry out uh, the, the governance of Israel can know how to judge justly and effectively and righteously. And they're going to need this case law to, to turn to to make sure that their judgments reflect those Ten Commandments. So first of all, verses 12 through 17, we have capital punishment. Capital punishment. And this idea of capital punishment then fleshes out right as we begin in verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So first of all, under capital punishment, we're looking at homicide. Homicide. And this law sought to protect society from the murderers as well as protecting those who commit accidental homicide. So let's look at those two different issues. Premeditated homicide is the first one, and the second one is accidental homicide. This is what he's saying. The idea of premeditated homicide here is that a man lies in wait. He's, he's planning his action. He's planning his crime. He's preparing himself so that he can actually catch this person and kill them. Literally, it says there, by cunning. or it could take place in the heat of the moment. One swing of a fist, one shove in the wrong direction, one violent response made in anger. In this case, the man is found guilty of murder, and the punishment is death. And the form of that punishment is usually stoning. So there's this premeditated homicide. We see that also as part of our law today. Then there's accidental homicide, unintentional death. Uh, not all deaths are intentional. I remember when I was, uh, when I was in, uh, it was after college, I think when I was a youth pastor, uh, I learned of one of my friends from high school um, who was working for Detroit Edison. That would be Michigan's version of PG&E. And his job was to, uh, was to fix the, 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 the wires and the poles um, that had fallen down after storms in Michigan. They have these incredible ice storms, and they also uh, have storms in the summer. And I think this was uh, uh, in the winter when this happened. But there were some downed wires, and they work as a team, and they, they had calls in place, and there was a guy up in the bucket on the, on the, you know, on the, the machine that, that, that goes up there, 
and he went up there to make sure that there was no power going through the cord. He said, all clear, and my friend picked up the wire, and it wasn't all clear, and he died instantly. Just a horrible tragedy. And of course, you know who felt bad. The guy up in the bucket who said it was all clear. I mean, he followed all the protocols. He did everything right. Sometimes accidents happen and people die. Those are tragic things. But, but there's, a, there's a solution here. And there's also, if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, uh, then I will appoint for you a place to which you may flee. You say, well, why would he have to flee? If he's not guilty of actually um, committing this crime, it's homicide. Yeah, the person dies, but he's not, you know, he didn't do it deliberately. This just happened. Well, it's because there was a cultural practice of blood vengeance. According to an honor code, just think of Hatfield and McCoy, all right? You kill one of ours, we're going to come after you, and we're going to kill one of yours. That's a kind of a, a blood vengeance. This is not necessarily biblical. This is just cultural. This is just how societies function during this time. And so God is coming in, and he's saying, no, we're not going to function with this kind of this kind of blood vengeance mentality. Instead of that, we're going to provide a place of safety for these people. In fact, if you remember, in Deuteronomy 32, 35, Jesus says, vengeance is mine, I will replay. He's confronting that whole idea of blood, blood vengeance. Well, what was established? Well, a little bit later, you'll find in Joshua 20, are these six cities of refuge. There were 48 cities all across Israel. And they established six cities of refuge. And these were the places that someone could flee if somehow uh, someone died and their hand was involved in it, but they were innocent of it. And so as soon as the person dies, that person had to take off to one of those cities of refuge. Now, they're all kind of strategically laid out, so they're, they're accessible. And the, the family member who was going to avenge would run after you and chase you. And if he got you, he would, he would kill you and feel justified. But the goal then was to get to that city of refuge. And while you're there, when you get to the city of refuge, then a trial would take place. And if you were found guilty that you were responsible and this person's death is because of, of, of you or you, you murdered them, then you would be handed over and you would receive the punishment. If, you, if they found that you were innocent, you weren't just like let go. Um, you had to actually stay within the, 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 the confines of that city but you were protected, and you were protected for life. That was all part of, of this provision for those accidental homicides. Capital punishment, first of all, homicide. Secondly, I want you to notice um, what, what I'm calling either assaulting or cursing parents. There's two sections here, uh, verse 15 and verse 17. We're just putting them together. And, and this might seem really, really uh, over the top to you, especially if you're a kid. Right? Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. Now, we need to think through what this means. Let's just think through what it means to strike his father, first of all. The word strike here doesn't just mean punch. Right? It's not just kind of like, you know, I bumped into you or I punched you or, or somehow pushed you. Uh, the idea of this word, word means that you someone. You're assaulting them so that you're leaving them almost dead. That's the idea of this word. So this is, this is a really heavy kind of assault that, that, that the person's barely alive from. 
okay? The idea of cursing his father or mother is not just somehow saying a, a bad word. It's actually disowning your parents. It's actually not taking responsibility for your parents. It's saying, I don't want anything to do with you. That's why Jesus in the New Testament, when he's confronting the Pharisees, he's confronting them over this practice of Corban, where they're, they're, they're saying, oh, we're not responsible to take care of our parents because we've set our money aside for the temple. See, these are all spiritual things. He's like, no, you're not following uh, the will of God here. You're violating a commandment. You're not honoring your parents. All right, so it's, it's a formal distancing. And what is, what is the consequence here? Shall be put to death. That's, that's pretty strong stuff, isn't it? God doesn't take lightly the breaking of the fifth commandment. And God wants his people to see these are the ways that we break the fifth commandment. So there's the assaulting, the cursing of parents, there's homicide, and third, there's kidnapping. Stealing a man and selling him, presumably as a slave, right? Verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. I mean, if, if, if this verse had been, had been mined and taught and became the norm in the history of the world among Christian people, um, a lot of people would have gone to jail. A lot of people would have been put to death. Not just the people that stole other people, slave traders, but even the people that were in possession of them. Why? Because God takes the sanctity of human life seriously. So this is a clear confrontation and denunciation of anything close to what we know as the transatlantic slave trade. In God's eyes, it is an abomination that required death. And friends, these are important for us to see. That in the heart of God, in the heart of his character, God is saying, life means something. Not just for the rich. Not just for the middle class. But for the slave. For the poor. For those who struggle. So we move uh, from them now, capital punishment, to what I'm calling personal injury. This is the next situation. The next set of laws relate to life-threatening or crippling but where that person does not die or there's no permanent injury. And first of all, we want to consider striking a person. Again, here's that word again. But we have a scenario that's, that's, that kind of is a little bit shocking. But let's just begin by reading verse 18. When men quarrel, and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed... Then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, who, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of time and shall have him thoroughly healed. The idea here is that there was a quarrel that turned into a fight, either with a, a weapon, a stone, or a weapon, that would be a fist. He hasn't died, but he's taken to his bed. In other words, in the hospital, Okay. This is what's happened. There's an assault that has taken place, and the person is now in the hospital. And if the person in the hospital dies, guess what? You move from this section, and you move up one section to capital crimes, and that person now who committed the crime is guilty and should be put to death. 
But in this situation, he doesn't die. And when he doesn't die, notice what the responsibility is. The guilty person, and we'll put this in modern-day terms, the guilty person would have to pay the man's workman's comp as well as all of his medical bills. Notice what it says there. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. So you, you do this, you're responsible for it, and you're responsible to pay for that person's recovery, and you're supposed to pay for their loss of time because they weren't able to work. All right? So that's striking a person. Then we'll focus in on, next one, striking a slave. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or the slave is his money. Now, I, I don't want you to be sidetracked by the statements that the slave is his money, that, that's simply communicating something. I'll get there in a minute. But just notice here, you have, a, you have a boss and you have a crew that is working. And the boss comes along, he strikes that slave with a rod, trying to get them to work harder or whatever it might be. And if he dies, if the slave dies, guess what? We move back up to the capital crimes, and that person then deserves death. They're guilty. So now the master is found guilty, and his consequence is death. All right? Now, if you, if you move down a bit to 26, you'll notice when a man eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. So it's important here for us to note that all of the slave is contractually the property of the master, okay, because the master owns him, like we looked at last week, by virtue of contract. He's working for him. The master does not have the right to treat the slave in any way he chooses. The slave has human rights. And certainly that is clear from this text. The slave servant owner lost his ownership as soon as he physically abused his servant. Now, it didn't just mean that the master kicked that slave outside the house, right? Because if you remember last week, we talked about the, the, the people would come and they would work in households. But it's saying not only, not only is this person no longer under the contractual obligation anymore, but the judge would have to take into consideration how many years did that slave have still under contract and make some kind of a judgment to determine what kind of payment would be proper for restitution. So we have striking a person, striking a slave, and then number three here, striking an innocent bystander. Now, in this illustration, the innocent bystander happens to be a woman and happens to be the fact that she's pregnant. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall, repay, he shall pay as the judge determines. Now, get this. Just striking a woman and in particular, a pregnant woman was considered sufficient grounds for a fine. So even if the child, if, if she doesn't give birth or there's no harm, doesn't remove the fact that there was a crime that was committed, okay? But as we read on here, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for 
wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Given, did. But did he from the child? So when it says, so that her children come out, notice that children is plural. They say, well, maybe she had twins. But the idea behind this, from, from what I can understand, is it didn't just refer to the child that she had in the womb, but it also referred to the fact that the, the striking, the, 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 the abuse that was made on her body result, potentially results in her not able to have any more children. So her reproductive system is no longer functioning. And if that's the case, not only is the man guilty of the death of the child, but he's also responsible for the ongoing health of that woman and the reparations that need to be uh, met out there. So uh, there's some some things going on here to that expression, eye for eye, life for life and stuff. So the issue here has to do with damage to the child in the womb and damage to the woman. That a result of the attack, she is no longer able to have children. She has permanently, permanent damage to her body. But if the baby's okay, if there's no harm and the baby's okay, and there is no damage to her reproductive system, then simply there's going to be a fine that the judge would have to determine along with the husband. If there is harm or she or the child is permanently injured, the penalty imposed must fit the severity of the damage. This is called Italian law. We'll get to that again in a little bit. Then we move from capital punishment, personal injury, to a third section here, criminal negligence. And again, there's three sections to this. There's the animal versus man. This is where you have an ox that is goring someone. Don't just think an ox. It just means an animal, right? In other words, application-wise, yeah, it's an ox, but it could be the fact you have a pit bull that runs around and bites people, right? And um, you can bite people and you can inflict death, right? Animals are certainly unpredictable. They, they do crazy things, so you can't necessarily uh, hold the owner responsible uh, are always responsible for the actions of their animals. So if this happens, the animal is put to death. Get to sell or eat the meat. That is an ox. Uh, in that society, an ox was money. Uh, an ox was food. Uh, you measured your wealth not by how much money you had in the bank. You measure wealth by how many oxen you had or how many sheep and goats you had. But if the ox or the animal had a habit of doing this and you didn't look, uh, lock him up or tie him down, the animal is killed and you are found guilty because you are responsible because you knew better and you did nothing about it. You did not love your neighbor enough to protect them from this animal. So you're guilty and shock. If you're guilty, guess what? The punishment is death. That might shock you. That's a pretty heavy burden. But the issue here is criminal negligence. It's one, not one, it's one thing for your animal to do something, but if you know your animal has a propensity to do that, you're responsible for what happens next. Now, the same thing happens to, to a daughter or son or a slave. You aren't killed, but maybe 
This is because it's, sometimes it's hard to determine um, who is at fault when uh, you're the master or giving instructions, but you still have to pay a fine. So the boss is responsible for his animals. Now, I want you to notice verses 19, uh, sorry, 29 and 30, all right? And I realize this is, this is heavy stuff, but just follow with me as we finish out this section. It says, but if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. If ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. So the punishment or for, for being guilty of this crime is death. But death can be set aside with a ransom. Okay, notice verse 30. A ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life. In other words, I don't want to die for this crime. What do I need to do? Well, it's not just, you know, write a check. It actually might be you have to go now work as a slave for this person for a period of time. And this goes back to this this principle that the punishment must fit the crime. As we continue on, there's man versus animal. And there, if that happens, um, you know, the, the, the man is, is building a pit. He doesn't put anything around it. People don't know. Animal doesn't know. Goes in, dies. You're responsible to make restitution. And then animal versus animal, again, the idea is you're supposed to pay for this. So I'm just trying to summarize this with some, some purpose and some cohesiveness here. But you understand there's capital crimes, there's personal injury, and third, there's this criminal negligence um, that, is, that, that is on the part of the person who's not, who's not thinking and not really loving his neighbor well. Now, those are the rules for us to know. Now, as we kind of assess those rules, there's some truths now, secondly, that we want to apply. There's some truths that will flow out of these rules that are helpful for us. Number one, I think I have about four of them. Number one, God is concerned about the behavior of his people. Now, friends, hear this. If you're a parent and you have kids at home, you have rules, and you care about those rules. Those rules are there to help the the function and the order of the household. God is concerned about the behavior of his people. One of the things that we need to understand initially is that the kind of government that God was establishing. See, in other words, it's God and its priests fleshing down now to the people. The form of government that we are under is a representative democracy where citizens vote in representatives and representatives represent the citizens in government. So our American form of government is not a reflection of this biblical form of government. In fact, it's a form of government that emphasizes individualism rather than the collective whole. Now, I realize the other version of the collective whole would either be socialism or communism. But under a theocracy, God is ruling through his priests. That's what's happening here. God is establishing a theocracy in Israel. 
And so the government dynamic of Israel is different than the government dynamic that we have in our country. That's important for us to understand because although these laws are given for us, but what they do is they reveal the heart and the character of God. They reveal the morality of God in establishing these laws. And when we come to the New Testament, Jesus comes preaching the gospel of God. Which Mark records this way. This is Mark chapter four, 1, verse 1. John was arrested and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repenting and believing in the gospel doesn't get you into Israel. Repenting and believing the gospel gets you into the kingdom. And the kingdom is not a physical nation. It's a spiritual kingdom where God rules over that kingdom. And the heart and the character and the morality of God will be what rules in that kingdom. But there, it's a different dynamic. So the emphasis then of, of the kingdom is that if we are God's children, we are citizens of his kingdom. And what's important then is that kingdom is presently fleshed out with this thing called the church. And we are in this already and not yet place. We are already part of God's kingdom, but we haven't fully realized the full aspects of that kingdom, but that will take place when the Lord returns. So we just got to think differently. What's happening in Israel is not like, we don't take it out and say, boom, this is what we have to be doing now. We've got to be careful we don't just pull a verse out of this section and say, see, this is what God says. It has to be part of society now. The principles behind it should be what flows through. And if it's not happening in our society, it sure should happen in the context of the church. So God is concerned about the behavior of his people. In other words, living demands kingdom. Citizen kingdom God is giving you guidance and, st and structure and instructions and help to, so that you can understand what it means to be a child of the kingdom and seek to glorify him. The Apostle Paul in particular emphasizes this fact when he says, put off the old it's corrupt for the deceitful desires and renew the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He's saying, this is, your, this is the old way of living. Now be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on this new kingdom style of living. This is, this is our pursuit. This is what it means to, to be involved in Christian growth. This is progressive sanctification. And as sufficient to simply say, I believe in God or I believe in Christ because belief impacts your behavior. And as citizens of the kingdom, we're to be submissive to Christ and to seek to do his will. We cannot separate our belief from our behavior. As if we can say something like this, it doesn't matter what I do in public, what matters is that I am worshiping God in private. Or in other words, who are you to say that I shouldn't do X, Y, or Z? My relationship with God is my own private business. That, we hear that kind of stuff in, even within a, you know, 
American Christian circles today. No, 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 no. If you're a child of the kingdom, God expects you to behave like a child of the kingdom. The problem is we want to have our cake and eat it too, don't we? We want the comfort of being spiritual. Feel the freedom to do what we want. Now, I'm not calling for kingdom police to be going to people's households and seeing what's happening in there and, you know, handing out fines and stuff like that. That's not the point. The teaching of the Word of God is that your belief will inform and instruct your behavior. That your orthodoxy, what you believe, will inform and instruct praxy, which is how you behave. God cares how His children behave. It matters to Him. And that's why He's taken time to give His law and to give even the case law that supports those Ten Commandments. Because He cares about how his people live. That's the first thing. Secondly, and this this kind of oozes through this whole text, doesn't it? You are responsible for your actions. Sadly, our present society has been trained to find blame in other places for their own behavior. I remember a number of years ago, I was watching a a show on TV, and uh, it was about carjackings, and they were interviewing a young man in in Florida, I'll just hold it, it's fine, Um, a young man in Florida, and um, he was involved in a number of different carjackings. And they asked the question, why did you go about committing these carjackings? And his answer was, I have no choice. If you knew the neighborhood I grew up in, it was the only way to survive. In his own mind, He's actually believing this. But still, as we think about this, he's saying, it's not my fault. It's the environment that forced me to behave this way. But God says in here, it doesn't matter about the environment. You did this. Well, I didn't mean to. It doesn't matter if you meant to. You did this. Therefore, there is a punishment. Sometimes we try to excuse our behavior by claiming a medical condition. Just the fact that you have a headache does not give you the excuse to treat other people unkindly. All right? I understand. We all get headaches. Anyone here get a headache? Anyone feel crabby when you get a headache? All right? Anyone say things that you shouldn't say when you have a headache? Yes. You're responsible for what you do even though you have a medical condition. You're responsible. So you're responsible for your actions. And throughout the the rules for life that we're given in this text, one of the underlying themes is you are responsible for your actions. You choose to kill someone with premeditation, then you're going to get death. You choose to strike someone that they're put in the hospital, you're responsible, and you're required to make the right restitution for as long as necessary. If you accidentally injure someone because you were being reckless, you are responsible. In today's terms, if you get into an accident while intoxicated, you are responsible and accountable for the effects of the accident. If you fail to keep your dog on a leash and it bites another person, you as the owner are responsible for that dog. If in a moment of anger you hit a person who has offended you in some way and they die, you will be held responsible. In all these illustrations, friends, 
we must go back to the source of the Ten Commandments, and in particular, the second table of the law, which is summarized by Jesus as, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the reality is, when we are not taking responsibility for our actions, we are not loving our neighbor. So friends, it would be good for us to consider the words of the Apostle Paul in the last half of chapter 4 of Ephesians where he describes the challenge between the old man and the new man and he says this, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. Let me just say this, these are all exhibitions of the old man, of the flesh that you don't even have to think about. They're there ready to pounce. You got to put those away. But he goes on and says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. These are the the works of the Spirit that we put on. And friends, we have to force them on. They're not natural. They go against our flesh. And so we have to work hard at being kind to one another. You ever ever been there? I am so angry, but I've got to be kind. (laughs) Lord, help me. And you say, Lord, I I know this is what you want me to do, and I'm going to do the best I can. Be tenderhearted. That just changes your whole demeanor. Forgiving one another. Friends, those are evidences when you're fighting like that to say that that you're saying in your heart, I love my neighbor. Third, God is concerned about the behavior of his people. You're responsible for your actions. And number three here, the punishment must fit the crime. This is what's called lex talionis. You go to verse 23, and again, you see there in verse 23, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe, and he probably just ran out of things that he could repeat. Like I said, this is called Italian law. It's a law that says the punishment must fit the crime. And, and that, that expression, lex taliana, simply means the law of the tooth, right? So it's all tied into the things that are in our text, right? You, you punch a slave and they knock the tooth out. However, uh, this verse is often misunderstood, in particular as a warrant for vengeance. And by that, I mean vigilante vengeance. Gandhi, the uh, the Indian leader, famously said, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. And see, what he didn't get there was that people use this verse for the purpose of vengeance. But the context here is not a context of vengeance at all. But even Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says this. This is Matthew 5, 38 and 39. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Is Jesus saying he disagrees with what's here in this passage that we're in? No. What he's doing and what you'll find he is often doing is he's confronting perversions of application of what is in the Old Testament. People take things and they make them 
be things that they're not supposed to be. This is not a statement of vengeance, friends. This is a statement that says justice must be done. The punishment must fit the crime. But the punishment is not carried out by me because I feel offended. That's anarchy. Living in a society that has rules and order means we don't just take vengeance. We turn to the leadership. We turn to those institutions that are there to provide justice to carry out that justice. And that punishment must fit the crime. The problem is, friends, that when this, this principle is not followed, cries for justice are rightly expressed. Let me just remind you of something that happened, I think it was 2014, 2015, uh, over in uh, Stanford, a young man by the name of Brock Turner. If you remember, Brock Turner was a 19-year-old student at Stanford, and he, he raped a, and sexually assaulted a 22-year-old woman while she was unconscious. This is out, um, out in public, I think, I think by a dumpster. And there were two grad students that happened to come upon him and ultimately wrestled him down. And they saved this, this girl. He was taken to prison and he was charged uh, with five, uh, five counts, including rape and felony assault. All of those were part of the, part of the counts, right? He, was, he pled not guilty, but was found guilty of, of felony sexual assault. And when it came, came time for sentencing, the judge sentenced Turner to six months in jail, followed by three years of probation. And I think the judge said something like, something like this. Well, this young man has his whole life ahead of him. I didn't want to ruin it. And you, the, the people listening are just like, what? The punishment did not meet the crime did not reflect the crime. And, and friends, we understand that that is totally inappropriate. So these are principles that, that flow out of this text. But there's another one. And letter D is equal justice for all. Did you notice that in our text, God's concern for the sanctity of human life was for men? And for women, now just think back to this ancient culture and context. God is saying, this is true for men, this is true for women. I want to protect men, and I want to protect women. I mean, very clearly, it's laid out here. You know, if there's a slave, whether he's male or female, same treatment. Not only that, there's slaves and there's masters. Same treatment for the master he commits the crime, same treatment and handling and care and, and um, thought about the, the slave, which would be that, that worker, that servant, and the same justice for the born and for the unborn. And it's to this last group, the unborn, that I don't want to draw your attention. It's worth noting that in the case law given here in the book of the covenant, there is a clear statement about the value of the life of the child that is in the womb. Look at verse 23 again. But if there is harm, this is talking about this, this, this woman who was an innocent bystander who was, who was attacked and, 
And as a result of that, there is harm. And the idea there is that if, the, if that baby died, what is the first thing in the line there? You shall pay what? Life for life. This is Italian law. It's given in the context of the injury to this child in the womb that has taken place. And based on the context, the answer to the question, if there is harm, is that there are two categories. Either this is a capital crime, if it was intentional, or if it was unintentional, it was accidental homicide. In other words, hear this. The life that was in the womb is considered equally viable, valuable, and vulnerable, a defenseless human being in the womb. Not just a piece of flesh, not just a glob of cells, but a person, a human being with full rights. It's right there in the text. If this baby dies, it's a capital crime. Now, you might be tempted to say, Pastor, you're getting political. No, no, no. I'm getting exegetical. That's what this text is saying. And we just need to, we need to let it kind of come up from the text so that we can see that, that we're not just a bunch of crazy people who are fighting for something that really isn't true. No, this is God's heart. He's laying out case law for the Ten Commandments. This is what it looks like. Thou shalt not murder. Why? Because this is not a piece of flesh. This is a human being. So God values the sanctity of human life in the womb and outside the womb. And friends, oh, how society has drifted way off course from the foundations of God's morality. And it's daunting to think that most of the abortions that have taken place throughout history have been intentional. And in God's eyes, it is clearly murder. But in our government's view, it's reproductive, reproductive health care. And God's view is, in their minds, an extreme attack. And I'm going back to the statement that I began with. Now, I know that this can be a very emotional topic for some. There may be women here or listening who have had abortions. There may be men or family members who have put pressure on women to have abortions. There may be grandmas and grandpas whose grown children have chosen to abort their children. And you feel angry or you're grieved or you're ashamed. But please hear this. You must hear this. Abortion is not the unforgivable sin. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not hold back its grace because you are guilty of having or pressuring an abortion. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, his death was sufficient to pay for your sinful act. And when you come to him, you receive full forgiveness. But you must admit your guilt and cry out to God in repentance. And Jesus will grant you full and immediate forgiveness. And then you must fight to believe that the forgiveness that he has granted you remains. And friends, that's actually one of the biggest struggles 
for those who are Christians who have committed abortion. That God would continue to forgive. Now, we've noticed, first of all, the rules that we need to know, the truth to apply. But now I want to move into the gospel to celebrate because there's things about the gospel, things that point us to Christ out of this text. And you can just, you can hear the language if you just kind of filter and sift through this text. First of all, I want you to notice that, that we as sinners, we are guilty. Those who have committed these crimes are guilty. And there's different responses for that guilt. There's death, there's restitution, there's payment that is necessary. And that's why we can turn to one verse. There's probably a number we could turn to, but Romans uh, 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And what we're going to see here is that there is this idea of death, but with Christ there is life. But that life doesn't come except through death. So we as sinners, we're guilty. And Jesus comes, and he's innocent. And he dies as that sacrifice. And he redeems. And he reconciles. Again, we could look at a number of verses, but I, I chose this one to be helpful. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to serve or to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So it wasn't just that he died. There was something that happened transactionally in his death. He reconciled. He made a payment. He makes restitution for our sin. And then... We move from being sinners because of the gospel to being saints, where we are forgiven. We were guilty. Jesus is innocent. But because he died, we are now forgiven. And not only that, we have life. (laughs) We have a new family. We have a citizenship. Just listen to the gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus says, I came that they may have life. But it doesn't stop there, does it? It says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You and I deserve death because of our sins. With Jesus, because of the gospel, we are now over here. And we have forgiveness, and we have life, and we have reconciliation, and we have restoration because of what he's done. And we are part of this new family. And we have a new citizenship in the kingdom of God. And at the end of John's gospel, he's reflecting on the whole of his book. And notice what he says. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Doesn't stop there, though, does it? And that by believing, you may have life in his name. You see, some people think that the focus of John's gospel, what he's saying is that you believe 
But it's more than that. You don't just believe. You believe, but that belief results in life. Now, friends, this is what's screaming at us from the text. God is concerned about the sanctity of human life, and he's more concerned about the wonder and the beauty of eternal life. Now, both are important. But we can fight for the sanctity of life all we want, and we should. But the life that we have because of Christ is eternal life. It's abundant life. What happens at the moment of conversion is an incredible transaction where we are moved from death to life. What does Paul say? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made us alive and caused us to be seated with him in the heavenly places. Now, having said all that, let me just bring things to a close. There's a lot to ponder here, I realize that. But I just want to leave you with maybe four just quick application thoughts. From this text, I want to encourage you, first of all, to love God, to continue your pursuit of loving God. As you reflect on the fact that God built, uh, uh, that God um, uh, pursued you with his gospel, marvel at that truth. That he is the one that, that thought about you. He is the one that Uh, pursued you. He's the one that drew you to himself. But you are unworthy. And that grace that he is giving to you is undeserved. Why? Because you're guilty. You're filthy. And you're dirty. And you are responsible for all your sin. But God in his love pursued you. Secondly, And this flows out of that. Love the gospel. When you see afresh what God has done for you in Christ, don't take it for granted. This is why we pause. This is why we think about the gospel regularly when we gather together. Because we want to grow in our understanding of the gospel. We want to grow in our understanding about, it's not just a ticket to heaven, but it's a way that God now frames our living. We live in Christ. We live for his glory. So love the gospel, love God, but this spills over then to love our neighbors. Live your life with Christ, his gospel, and your neighbors in mind. It will change, friends, how you think about your neighbor. It will change how you talk to your neighbor. It will change how you pray for your neighbor. I am the product of the gospel. He came, he saved me, and the same way that he saved me and forgave me, I should be forgiving my neighbor. So that's gospel application. So this this flows out. And then the last one, love your church. God has created this church, our church, to be a place where Christians can come together and flesh these things out and work on their progress toward Christlikeness. We need to be a place where we can be a little bit raw at times about the sinful struggles that we have and to encourage one another because we're all a bunch of sinners saved by grace here. Now, we may be saints, but we still struggle with sin. 
And I'm not going to say that's okay, because it's not okay, but it's okay in the sense of we're making progress. We haven't arrived yet. We're not there yet. And until we get there, God is calling us to be a body of believers that's, that's nurturing and encouraging one another to pursue him as our goal. So we've moved from death to life <laughs> to a future with Christ in the kingdom of God. We don't deserve it, but it's God's blessing for his children. Lord, help us today. There's lots of, lots of things for us to think through here. First of all, Lord, that you value the, the, the life of every human being. Whether that's the unborn, whether that is the, 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 those that have special needs, whether they're older, whether they're physically struggling, whether they're fearful, whether they're anxious, whether they're loud and obnoxious, Lord, you're committed to the sanctity of human life. And Lord, as we, as we reflect on that, Lord, we, we know that as one person in our society, there's only so much that we can do. But what we, know, what we do know is that we can live our lives with that mentality, that, that biblical paradigm and with the people that we interact with, we can point them to the, the answer, to the true hope that is only found in you. Oh, yes, Lord, we can, we can do our part as far as politics, voting, and things like that. But, Lord, may our, in our words, may they reflect your values. They may, may they reflect your morals. May they reflect your heart, Lord. And so, Lord, we ask that you continue to to squeeze us with your truth, to move us and to shape us, to become more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. We ask this now in your precious name. Amen.